morning. Very thankful to be here this morning. Happy to see you all. That comment takes on a new meaning when I share this story with you. Recently, I was talking to a, a member here, and she expressed that during one of my visits, she thought that I was so short that I wouldn't be able to look over the pulpit without a stool. So seeing you this morning is a, is a blessing, amen? <laughs> well, this morning we will be continuing our study in the first two verses of chapter one of Philippians. We're studying this notion of identity. Last week, we asked two questions. The first question is, who is Jesus? And the second question is, who are we? I answered the former question that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God in the flesh. And the second question of who are we, I answered that question that we as a church are holy. Now this week we'll be answer, asking a different question, and, and it, it still relates to the second question we asked last week, but it's going to be an individual question. Who am I? Who am I? That's the question that I'm going to ask this morning, and the way I will answer it will be on the basis of Christians. Who are Christians? Who are they as individuals? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is my personal identity in Christ? We're going to be asking those types of questions. But before we begin, it's important to unpack how our culture, much of our culture, answers this question for us. In order to understand the Bible, sometimes we have to understand the context in which we exist in. Context is not everything, but context is something. It's, and it's very important as we dive into what Paul teaches us with reference to our identity in Philippians 1.1, that we understand what, co what culture teaches us about our identity. Culture has many answers to this question of who am I? So for our first point, we're going to dive into what culture teaches us. So if you're taking notes, write this, right? Our context. Our context. So to begin this point, go ahead and turn with me to Romans 12, verse 2. That's page 947 in the Black Chair Bible. Romans 2.12. In this context, Paul is concluding what he has been arguing in Romans 1 through 11. Romans 12 is a pivot to a new subject. And that subject are commandments. The subject is how should Christians respond to the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And Paul begins chapter 12 by giving us some commandments, particularly in verse 2. This is how it reads. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I take, there, there's a negative commandment here and there's a positive commandment. The first commandment is a negative. Do not be conformed to this world. Well, what about the world? What particularly about the world, Paul, are you talking about? I take it to be the, the world's way of thinking. You get this in the positive commandment that we are, be t we are to be renewed, be transformed by the renewal of our mind. I take it that mind here is working in both commandments. Do not be conformed to the pattern of thinking that this world tries to place you in, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your thinking. 
That's what I think Paul's saying here. So this negative commandment, we are not to be conformed to the pattern of thinking that is so prevalent in this world. Ideas are not neutral. Ideas are not neutral. There are good and bad ideas. There are Christian and non-Christian ideas. And in the church, our goal is to communicate and uphold biblical ideas, true ideas. Far too often that's not the case, though. But it is the job of the church, of the pastor, to disseminate true ideas and to pinpoint false ideas. And there are many false ideas with reference to our identity, but one in particular that has become very popular in our Western context is this notion of self-esteem. Self-esteem. Self-esteem is actually a new idea. In the 1960s, particularly in 1969, there was a publication of a book entitled The Psychology of Self-Esteem. A type of book has, but prior to this, there had not been a book published like this. So this is a new idea. And listen to what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller has written a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a very short book. It's a very good book. I'd encourage you to get it and read it. And in that book, he, he gives this extended quote. So bear with me as I read through this. Up until the 20th century, traditional cultures always believed that too high a view of yourself was the root cause of all evil in the world. What is the reason for most of the crime and violence in the world? Why are people abused? Why do people do bad things to others? Traditionally, the answer has been hubris. Hubris is the Greek word meaning pride or too high a view of oneself. Traditionally, that was the reason given for why people misbehave. But in our culture, in the modern Western culture, we have developed an utterly opposite cultural consensus. The basis of contemporary education, the way we treat incarcerated prisoners, the foundation of most modern legislation, and the starting point for modern counseling is exactly the opposite of the traditional consensus. Our belief today, and it is deeply rooted in everything, is that people misbehave for lack of self-esteem and because they have too low a view of themselves. For example, the reason why husbands beat their wives and the reason why pe people are criminals is because they have too low a view of themselves. People used to think that people acted badly because they had too high a view of themselves and had too much self-esteem. Now we say people act badly because we have too little self-esteem. Wow, what a quote. The self-esteem movement, the, the notion that we ought to esteem ourselves can take the form of these type of assertions in your mind. I'm strong. I'm beautiful. I need to forgive myself. I need to accept myself. I love myself. I'm good. I'm worthy of respect. I can do it. I feel good about who I am. I don't have regrets. I need to think positive thoughts. Other people don't know what they're thinking about. Other people don't know what they're talking about. I'm the way I want to be. My feelings matter. Now, in taking all of those quotes, there is some truth in there. All falsehood has some element of truth in it. 
And there is some element of truth in the self-esteem movement. It is important to have notions like confidence and identity. And it is not bad to feel good. Okay, I, I'm not saying that we should just self-hate. But the way the self-esteem mo movement and idea goes about achieving our inner identity is through the wrong way. It goes about it by putting all power and identity in oneself. And I think this tendency can be very well seen in personal evangelism. Have you ever witnessed to someone who says, well, you can't judge me? I think that's a perfect example of how the self-esteem movement is so popular today in Dallas whenever I'd witness to someone. I, I would get that response all the time. And the reason why people would say that is because they felt like, as I brought up the notions of sin and judgment and wrongdoing, and I brought up a, a, a false conscience, a conscience that condemns people, they would, their feelings would feel impeded that I was encroaching upon how they view themselves, their self-esteem. And they, the way that they would respond would be with animus, to attack me. Who are you to question how I think and feel about myself? And these ideas of self-esteem have certainly infiltrated the church, too. We all feel like this. Now, should we feel like this? Should our approach to self-identity be to esteem ourselves? No. Over and over and over and over again. The Bible calls us to not find our identity in ourselves. To not look deeper. The Bible says that the deeper you look, the worse things will get for you. The more sin you will see. We are not, to, we are not supposed to look inside for identity. We are not to esteem oneself to find hope, joy, and peace. That's a false idea. And to explore the correct idea, go to Philippians 1.1, the main passage that we will be exploring this morning. Philippians 1.1. So is self-esteem the proper way? Are we to esteem oneself? Am I to think highly of myself? No. Well, then how should we think? This is the second point. If you're writing notes, write our identity. And this whole concept of identity that I will be developing this morning comes from this word in Philippians 1.1. It's the fourth word in the English text. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants. Our identity is found in this word. Christians are to view themselves as servants. Now, to begin exploring what this word means, I want to bring up a couple translations, English translations that kind of allow you to see something. The ESV, the King James, and the NIV, if you have either of any of those translations, your translation here is going to say servants. But that's not what every translation says. The New Living Translation the Net Bible, the Net Bible is the DTS translation. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it's a Southern Baptist translation. They translate this word servants as slaves. So we have servants, we have slaves. And one more translation. 
the NASB and the, N- the New King James Version, they translate this term as bondservant. Bondservant. So we have three translations. We have servant, we have slave, and we have bondservant. Anytime there are translations that are giving you different ideas and different words, you know that there's an interpretive issue going on there. And the, the word that I prefer is the notion slave. Slave. I believe that this, the best way to understand this is to read it like this. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. The Greek word behind here is doulos. Doulos. Listen to how one of the most authoritative New Testament dictionaries translates this word. The meaning of doulos and the word group associated with it is so unequivocal and self-contained that it is superfluous to give examples of the individual terms or to trace the history of the group. The emphasis here, listen to this, is always on serving as a slave. Hence, we have a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it, which he has to perform whether he likes it or not, because he is subject as a slave to an alien will, to the will of his owner. Now, the reason why there are various translations of this word is I don't believe it's difficult to translate and understand this word. I think it's the context in which we're in. The notion of slavery, if you mention a slave, I am a slave, that we are to be slaves of Christ, that brings up bad memories of the past, prior to the Civil War, slavery in our era. It brings up those types of ideas. And I think commentators want to avoid that association. And it's noble to do that, as slavery in the ancient world was different than slavery here in America. But nonetheless, the word does mean slave. Slave. Our identity, what Paul is telling us how we should think about ourselves, is not to esteem oneself, but to view oneself in a very lowly manner. To develop a slave-like mentality, that we are slaves. We are not to regard ourselves high. We are to regard ourselves very low. And there's two ideas in this notion of slavery. Two ideas that are very central to biblical Christianity. The first idea is that Christians have a master. That we have a Lord over and over and over again. If there's one central confession in the New Testament, it's that Jesus is Lord. What that means is that he is master. He is sovereign. He is in control. And this notion of Jesus' lordship relates to his redemption of his people. The Bible says that we have been redeemed. To be redeemed is to be purchased. Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus has purchased us. And there's a number of things or entities or forces that Jesus has redeemed us from. First, Jesus has redeemed us from the evil one. Jesus has redeemed us from Satan and demons. Jesus has redeemed us, redeemed us from ourselves. We are our greatest enemy. Our choices, the choices that we make, 
are the biggest problem in our lives. And lastly, Jesus has redeemed us from the Father. He has rescued us from the Father's wrath and anger. Jesus has redeemed us, and as the Redeemer, He now has the privilege of owning us. Jesus owns us, and therefore we should act in a certain way. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 expresses this idea. Paul says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are not your own master. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Christians, we are, possess we, we are possessed by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ owns us. As slaves, we have a master. And the second idea of, sla of the slave mentality, the second idea entails is that our lives as Christians are in complete subjection to Christ. We come, we live, not to do our will, not to insist upon our rights. We live in a wonderful nation, a nation that has a constitution that guarantees our rights. Praise the Lord. But as Christians, we do not see ourselves as insisting upon our rights. We mostly insist upon God's rights. We defend God. We mainly think about God. And also, as that slavery ship, that slave mentality transforms us, we insist on the rights of others. We don't put ourselves first. We do not esteem ourselves highly. We esteem God highly, and we esteem others highly. It's not ultimately about what it is that we think and how it is that we perceive our lives. It's about how Christ perceives us. We need to think of our, ourselves less and we need to think of Christ more. We are Christ's slaves. Now this is some hard truth. This is some tough stuff. It's kind of in your face, isn't it? That we're slaves. Wow. What an idea. But there's great benefit for us. Tremendous, actually. Tremendous benefit. God does not call us to something of which he will not bless us for. God is a loving God. Well, pastor, what's, what's in it for me? Why should I think of myself as a slave? What a difficult thought. And the reason why you should think this way, that what's in it for you, is eternal blessing. Eternal blessing. So if you're taking notes, write this. This is my third point this morning. First point was our context. Second point, our identity. Third point, our blessing. Our blessing. This is as good as it gets. What we receive by becoming a slave of Jesus Christ is as good as it gets. There's nothing greater than being a slave of Jesus Christ. Why? On what basis am I, is, am I saying that? Go to Philippians 2, 5. Philippians 2, 5.
Here we have Paul's exposition of, of, of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. We'll go through verse 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul's telling us how to think. How should we think about ourselves? Verse 6. Who was Jesus? Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. The benefit, our benefit, our blessing follows from this passage. First, I want you to see who Jesus became. Verse 7, Jesus emptied himself. How did he empty himself? He emptied himself by taking the form of a doulos, a slave. If you're reading the ESV, it says servant, but it's the same word that occurs in Philippians 1.1. Jesus himself became a slave. Jesus himself became a slave. We are not greater than our master, Jesus Christ. And if he became a slave, we too ought to become slaves. Jesus became a slave. In what way? He was born in the likeness of man. He became flesh. Jesus, the preexistent one, took on human form. He became a man. He entered into our suffering and our sin. And his humility and his slaveship went to the point in verse 8 that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus started off, off way up here. He was in the form of God, yet he humbled himself. He became a slave. And it gets even worse for Jesus. He died on a cross. But look at verse 9. The story doesn't end there. We don't gather to just finish there. Praise the Lord, we have verse 9, 10, and 11. What did God the Father do because of Jesus' humility? Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The Father resurrected Jesus Christ, and he bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Jesus was God, is God. Prior to his incarnation, he existed with the Father. He humbled himself and became a man. And then he submitted, he submitted himself to death. And because of Jesus' slaveship, because of his slave mentality and his obedience, the Father exalted him to a place, to a, a realm of authority in which Jesus did not have before. And what's true of Jesus is true of us. If you submit your life to being a slave, the Father will exalt you. That's the blessing. That's why you should be a Christian. It's because God himself will deem your life valuable. 
That's the idea. Oftentimes, whenever we think about becoming a slave, we think, well, this is of great cost. Won't I neglect myself? Won't I spend myself and not be filled up? Isn't there a necessary self-preservation that we ought to have? Yes, there is. But what we do as Christians is we do not insist upon our ability to take care of ourselves. What we do is we give up our lives completely. And we entrust God with our lives. And what God is able to do for us far exceeds our, our ability to do with our lives what we can. God can do far greater with our lives than what we can do. While sacrifice is very hard, and that is essential to Christianity, the notion of sacrifice, to give of your life, that is essential. But nonetheless, in abandoning ourselves, we find our true identity. And when we abandon ourselves for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others, God the Father is faithful to us. Like he did with Jesus, he also will do with you. And that he will deem your life valuable. He will clap for you. He will approve of your life. This call to slaveship is not to our neglect. In seminary, we had to read quite a bit of books, many pages. Some are good, some books are good, some are bad. And some books were particularly compelling and particularly life changing. And some quotes were also particularly compelling and life changing. And out of all the literature that I read, out of every page, there's one quote that sticks out from all of them. So I'm basically synthesizing my seminary education for you in like two minutes. But this is gold. This is absolute gold. If you want to know how I should live my life, live your life based upon this quote. It's from Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite theologians. This is what he says. He's dealing with the notion of becoming a slave and God approving of us. This notion of neglect. Will we neglect ourselves? What's in it for me? This is what he says. If you seek the glory of God and the good of your fellow creatures, it is a sure way to have God seek your interest. If you devote yourself to God as making sacrifice for your own interests to him, you will not throw yourself away. Though you seem to neglect yourself and to deny yourself, God will take care of you, and he will see to it that your own interests shall, shall be provided for. You shall be no loser what you spend for his glory. If you are selfish and you make yourself and your own private interests your idol, God will leave you to yourself and let you promote your own interest as well as you can. But if you seek the things of Jesus Christ, the things of others... God will make your interest and happiness his charge. And he, 
is infinitely more able to provide for it and to promote it than you are. If you seek the things of Jesus Christ, God will make your interests and happiness His charge. And He is infinitely more able to provide for it and to promote it than you are. In becoming a slave, what we lose is our sinfulness. We seek to forsake ourselves. But what we gain is the eternal glory of the immortal God. How it is that I want you to respond this morning to this message is to invite you to lay down your life as a slave of Jesus Christ. And what God will give for you, to you, is infinitely better than anything you can attain for yourself. While the cost of Christianity is great, the blessing and benefit of it far exceeds its cost. Come, lay your life down to Jesus Christ, and if you already are a slave, continue faithfully serving your master until that day he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you that you have told us how we are to think of ourselves. God, I pray that we would repent of our self-esteem, that we would seek not to esteem ourselves. But God, based upon this passage, we would seek to esteem Jesus Christ and others greatly. And Lord, convince us that in doing this, in becoming Jesus Christ's slave, that we lose nothing. We lose nothing valuable. But what we gain is the eternal approval of the immortal God. Fill our lives, God, with your peace and mercy and truth. Turn us from our sins by the power of your spirit. And we pray that Jesus would save sinners and change us so that we could become better slaves of him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.